Welcome to Dead Pilot Society, the podcast that takes comedy pilots from A-list writers that were sold and developed at networks but never produced, and gives them the table reads they never got a chance to have. I'm your host, the creator of Dead Pilot Society, Andrew Reich. So, loyal listeners, has the suspense been killing you? When I spoke to you on the last episode, I was still waiting in late January to hear the fate of my ABC pilot. Well, on February 8th, I got the dreaded call from the studio saying it was a pass. As is usually the case, there's no reason given, so there's nothing concrete to build a narrative around. But I'm a writer. I build narratives, so it's hard to resist. I guess in this case, I'm going to go with uh, an old standby regime change person who was head of the network when we sold it was replaced by someone else with a different agenda. That could be the reason. Who knows? Uh, I'm not going to spend any more time trying to figure it out because it doesn't really matter. Only the next project matters. Uh, it was great to have a Dead Pilot Society show a couple days after getting the news. It's nice to be with other writers who understand what it's like getting a pass and it's really nice to be with an audience who is there to celebrate the pilot scripts that got passed over. People like you who are listening right now. I know maybe you're just here looking for some laughs on your commute, and that's great, but know that it means a lot to me and to all the other writers that you believe that there can be value in the quote-unquote failures. And there is definitely value in the failure that we have uh, for you this month. Our dead pilot this time is the recent calls of Annabelle Phipps, by Billy Finnegan, who I didn't know before uh, doing this pilot, but who really impressed me as a smart, inventive writer and also a great guy. So stay tuned after the read for a longer interview I did with Billy. Our cast, Noel Wells from SNL and Master of None as Annabelle, Ethan Peck from Star Trek Discovery as Judd, Britt Lauer from Man Seeking Woman as Hallie, Tia Sarkar from The Good Place as Lauren Lewis, Mo Collins from Mad TV as Marilyn, Andy Ridings from The Other Two as Russell, David Walton from The New Girl as Dr. Roz, and Krista Morin from The Handmaid's Tale as a whole bunch of people. So here's my live interview with Billy Finnegan from Dynasty Typewriter at the Hayworth Theater in Los Angeles, followed by the recent calls of Annabelle Phipps after a brief message. Hi, I'm Joe Firestone. And I'm Manolo Moreno. And we're the hosts of Dr. Game Show, which is a podcast where we play games submitted by listeners regardless of quality or content with in-studio guests and callers from all over the world. And you can win a custom a magnet. A custom magnet. Subscribe now to make sure you get our next episode. What's an example of a game, Manolo? Pokemon or medication. How do you play that? You have to guess if something's a Pokemon name or mm-hmm. a Medi- medication. medication. First-time listener, if you want to listen to episode highlights and also know how to participate follow dr game show on facebook instagram and twitter we'd love to hear yeah, from you it's really fun for the whole family we'll be every other wednesday starting march 13th and we're coming to max fun snorlax pokemon yes nice all right we're gonna bring up the writer of our second pilot billy finnegan <laughs> So, we are going to be reading your pilot, The Recent Calls of Annabelle Phipps. Correct. Tell us, uh, <laughs> when's this from? Um, I 
I developed it last year, no, 2017, so the previous development season before this one. But I had the first sort of, I first worked on it in like 2009 as a movie and did not know what I was doing. So <laughs> I uh, put it aside and, and then I guess like two years ago sort of thought of something uh, I wanted to develop and took this out of the drawer and uh, developed it for Fox and then put it back in the drawer <laughs> in a different form. Um, but it was fun. It's really, it's another one where it's, I don't want to give away too much because it's really, uh, it's really cool and interesting and especially in its, its structure. Um, did they, um, it's unusual and it doesn't fit into a, a genre. Do you have any sense of what Fox, did you, did you get why they bought it? Why they, why they didn't, why it didn't go? Did they, why it didn't go? Well, you know, last year while we were developing it, um, there was this merger between Disney and Fox and 20th Century Fox Television broke away from Fox and all of these things happened and I just was like home trying to like come up with dialogue and things and thinking like this is just not, why am I doing, why did I do any of this? <laughs> but um, but uh, no, I mean, I think they were, they were excited to, again, this is the network that did like Last Man on Earth and they've done tons of cool stuff and all their animation stuff is really cool. And, so I think they were really excited to, you know, take a big swing at something that was maybe a little higher concept than their usual thing, and and they they were sort of I think charmed by this, and you know the development process was pretty smooth. They they um, they definitely got what I was trying to do, and I think helped me make it better. And so there were no you know no no show business nightmares with this one at all. And you have a live pilot. This I have a live season. pilot. I do. Yeah. Yes. After six dead ones. Is that is that true? Yeah, this, this is, is number uh, six. That's that's awesome. So was there anything this time as that January rolled around, did you have a sense that you were gonna get better news? No. Than, no. 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 I was I was fully prepared for I really was. They were trying to do all of those things they make you do, like talk about directors and meet people, and I just was like, yeah, I'll, I'll, we can talk about whatever you want. You know, we can, we can talk all day. But I don't know why we're doing it. And, uh, and then literally I was in Detroit at the US Figure Skating Championships, and uh, I got this weird email from one of the network executives, and I was, I was like, well, here, here goes. They're gonna start asking me to do weird things because they passed it up to their boss, and he doesn't like it. And, and then I got another email that said, uh, I'm so proud of you from one of the network executives. And I was like, oh my God, wait, so I've misread the cues here. Something good is happening. And I really didn't know what to do. I was like, I didn't know what to, I still don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm doing. So that's a problem, but uh, no, it was, it was crazy. What a day. Yeah. Did your skating championship? Yeah, I was at the, I, we, were, we were at the Henry Ford Museum, which I highly recommend. You get to see the Rosa Parks bus and you get to see the car that John F. Kennedy was assassinated in. So I was already having like the best day of my life. And then they called to tell me they're gonna make this pilot. So it was pretty good, it was a good day. January 24th, 2019. Well, let's hear one that they decided yes, not to make. Yeah, let's do it. All right, thanks, Billy. Thank you. All right, this is The Recent Calls of Annabelle Phipps, written by Billy Finnegan. A 
Over a black screen, we hear a female voice. What do I like most about Judd Fleming? Well, that's a great question. I mean, at this point, there's so many things. And we begin a montage. We're on a New York City street in the early morning. We're POV behind gorgeous Judd Fleming, age 27, whose muscular back peekaboos out from under a sexily stretched out tank top as he walks. It's clear he's being followed, but by whom we don't see yet. A cell phone camera clicks and we freeze frame. Now we're at an Equinox gym a short time later. Judd is doing bicep curls. The camera focuses in on one sexy vein that's bulging out of his arm. When it finally focuses, a cell phone camera clicks. Freeze frame. We're at 14th Street and 8th Avenue subway station. Judd, now in a suit, goes to swipe his Metro card. A German tourist swipes and swipes his Metro card in the next turnstile, but can't get it to work. Judd swipes him through. A cell phone camera clicks, freeze frame. We're interior of the E-Train a short time later. Judd holds on as he reads a magazine article entitled, Syria Still Needs You. A cell phone camera clicks and reveal it belongs to Annabelle Phipps, age 26 and a half, who was down the train car surreptitiously taking pictures with her iPhone. The music is now in her earbuds as we end the montage. She continues taking pictures, which no one notices. She's that good. I know what you're thinking. Has she been following him around all morning taking pictures? Well, let me reassure you. The answer is yes, I do it every day. And we're on the subway platform moments later. Judd climbs the stairs to the station amidst a throng of commuters. Annabelle follows a few people behind. But can you blame me? Look at him and tell me I'm wrong to have spent the last eight and a half years of my life stalking him. And before you judge, I invite you to think of every guy or girl who's ever picture, every picture and post you've poured over on Facebook or Instagram and tell me how this is any different from that. A actually, this is better because I'm out in the world getting sunshine and vitamin D. I mean, not down here, but anyway, tons of sun. Tons of vitamin D. And we're at the subway entrance to the street. Annabelle emerges into the sunshine, which she basks in. Ah, what a beautiful morning. A bus barrels by, blasting Annabelle with exhaust. She coughs. Ah, my asthma. Judd breezes through the front doors of a building that says Merritt Fleming on it. After a beat, Annabelle follows. And now Judd Fleming's going to work, and so am I. That's right, we're co-workers. Just two people commuting to work together, one gliding through the front doors like a dancer, the other going through them like this. Annabelle <laughs> has tremendous trouble navigating the doors. I never know which, is it a push, be, uh, these are not good doors. And we end the cold open. Act one, we're interior, Merritt Fleming's IT department. Annabelle is at her desk, glued to her laptop. We close on the screen where she's clicking through Judd's emails. As a VP of IT, I oversee every aspect of Merritt Fleming's cyber existence. It's a big job, and I'm the youngest female ever to do it, so kudos to me for finding the time to pay such close personal attention to Judd's emails. After all, his dad, our boss, put him in charge of some very big... Oh, someone's niece is a chunk. We see an email with a photo of a chubby baby. As Annabelle enjoys it, her coworker Bart, age 25, confident, cute dork, pops his head over the cubicle wall, scaring her. Did you do those security patches? Jesus, Bart! Oh, you scared me. 
If I'd been holding this mug of oatmeal, I would have I would have spilled it all over the place. Uh, oatmeal's really too viscous to spill. Okay, okay, okay. Yes, I'm doing the patches. Thank you. Thank you. Speaking of you, um, how about you and I, Lady and the Tramp, some ramen tonight? <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. You'll choke, and we broke up for a reason. Remember? I remember being devastated. I remember crying in your arms. Uh, yes, all of Italy remembers that. Yeah. Annabelle's laptop dings. She looks, and we see an alert. Fleming, Judd, new calendar entry, Friday, 9.55 a.m., flight 223 to Miami. Her eyes go wide. Uh, I need Friday off. Why? Where are you going? I, I don't know. Uh, maybe my Miami? Hmm. My Miami, yeah. Miami. May I suggest Orlando instead? There's a Moana-themed water park near my Nana's house that plays the sickest Julio Iglesias beats. Why don't they just play songs from Moana? De tanto correr por la vida sin freno, me olvidé que la vida se vive un momento. As he continues to sing, me olvidé de vivir, there's another ding from Annabelle's laptop. She reads it intently, close on her eyes, darting back and forth. And now we are interior rotisserie Georgette later that day. Annabelle and her best friend, Hallie Jenkins, two days shy of her 27th birthday, clink champagne glasses. Happy almost birthday, bitch! <laughs> you sound like a K-pop DJ. <laughs> Ancestry.com says I'm one person Cambodian, so you are not far off, my friend. <laughs> well, I want to get trash, but I want to do it someplace nice so I can wear your Marc Jacobs jacket. Hey, it's all yours, and you're going to need it, because we're going to Z. The new Zelda Fitzgerald-themed speakeasy? Yes. How'd you get a table? It wasn't easy. They only communicate via telegram, but I did it. <laughs> Holy shit, you rock. Uh-huh. You are too. What? <laughs> what, are, what are you? Hallie turns to see what Annabelle's looking at. Angle on Judd across the restaurant, lunching with his work colleagues. Oh, now I see why you wanted to come here, because you read Judd's email and saw he was. Actually, I read his calendar, and I've been wanting to try this place since I heard a pigeon walked in and took a seat at the bar. <laughs> Annabelle nonchalantly snaps a picture of Judd with her iPhone. Great, so I may catch bird flu. Also, you can continue to obsess over some vapid JFK Jr. wannabe. Uh, C. Judson Fleming IV is currently ranked ninth on HuffPo's hottest highborn hotties list, ahead of Caroline Kennedy's son, Jack, an actual JFK Jr. wannabe, so... I don't know when this happened, but you have a French fry in your hair. Oh, thank you. And, and far from being that, but he was super into an article about Syrian refugees this morning. Annabelle scrolls through photos on her phone to show her. This is insane. You have to stop. Why? It's just, it's just a fun crush. <laughs> oh, this is him buying oranges last week. Aww. Four years of college and four years at Merritt Fleming, and you still can't even say hello to the guy? You'll never understand what we have. You'll never understand that you have nothing. Oh, oh, I have something. I have nine meaningful moments. Need I remind you of the nine meaningful moments Judd and I shared at Princeton? Need I remind you that I will kill myself if I have to hear them again? Fine, fine. Annabelle turns to a woman in her mid-50s eating soup next to them. Our nine meaningful moments. <laughs> Off the startled woman spilling lobster bisque all over herself, we flash back 
to Witherspoon Hall at Princeton University, 2010. Freshman Annabelle struggles to carry a stack of boxes. Move-in day, Princeton University, September 2010. Teenage dream floated out of too many dorm rooms as I buckled under the weight of every small appliance my mother bought me from Target, when suddenly someone lightened my load. She's surprised when someone takes the boxes. At first I thought it was my awful new roommate Freya, but then I saw the most gorgeous boy. Annabelle watches in awe as freshman Judd drops the boxes at her door and then walks away without looking back. I couldn't stop myself from saying... You are so beautiful. Which luckily he didn't hear what Freya did. Freya, 18 and Israeli, comes to the door and takes the top box. Thanks, but I'm into boys now. <laughs> and we go back to the scene at Rotisserie Georgette. A bored Hallie interrupts Annabelle's story. <laughs> you know what's funny? Jodie Foster slept with guys when she went to college, so like the opposite of most girls. Annabelle ignores her and continues to the woman. Meaningful moment number two. And we flash back to Blair Arch at Princeton University in 2010. Freshman Annabelle hurries down the steps of a grand archway. I was hurrying to the youth store for the Q-tips when I looked up and saw... She spots freshman Judd waving from the bottom of the steps. Judd, and I thought, this is it. Judd and I are about to meet cute. As she descends towards Judd, he keeps waving but backs away, looking above her. She turns to see where he's looking. But no, he was helping his friends center a banner they were hanging above the arch that said, Abandon panties, all ye who enter. <sighs> Office friends whooping rowdily for their crooked banner. We go back to Georgette as the woman she's speaking to tucks into her main course. He sounds like a jerk. Thank you. He's not. And meaningful moment number three is about to tell you why. And we flash back to the New Jersey transit train in 2010. Freshman Annabelle sits by herself reading a playbill. I was taking the train back to Princeton after seeing Next to Normal on Broadway for the 14th time when I spotted Judd. And we angle on freshman Judd down the train car reading a book. He was engrossed in my favorite book, The Autograph Man by Zadie Smith. A jerk wouldn't read that. Only a deep, sensitive boy would. I got lost in Judd as he got lost in Zadie. And before we knew it, the train pulled into Princeton Station or Princeton Junction. Annabelle looks around as the train rolls to a stop. Judd doesn't notice that they've stopped. Judd was going to miss our stop because Zadie Smith's a wonderful writer and the PA was broken and the stupid conductor wasn't walking through the train car announcing the stations. With the doors open and the clock ticking, I did the only thing I could think of. Annabelle slinks down in her seat and in her best conductor voice shouts out, Princeton Junction! Judd looks up and then scrambles off the train just as the doors close. Annabelle watches him go, pleased. I, of course, missed our stop, so... And we go back to the restaurant. Your friend left. Annabelle turns to see that the woman left. So she grabs the arm of the busboy taking the woman's plates and tells him... But moment four is maybe the most meaningful. Our class camping trip to the Pine Barrens of New Jersey. And we flash back to the Pine Barrens, a trail in 2010. As freshman Annabelle struggles beneath a giant backpack, she sees a shirtless freshman Judd hiking up ahead. Judd had no problem with his giant backpack. He also had no shirt on and a body that made me forget every spiderweb I walked into. <clears throat> I, I walked into a lot of them. And we pop to quick cuts of Annabelle flailing through spiderwebs. <laughs> Why are there so many? Did see me? Ah, that was a tarantula. <laughs> and back on the trail, Annabelle catches sight of Judd and collects herself. But I was okay, because Judd was there, and that made me happy. We zoom in on a peaceful Annabelle, and then her face darkens. And then I saw her. And we angle on beautiful Lauren Lewis, 18, laughing in slow-mo. <laughs> Lauren Lewis, that relentless 
tsunami of teeth and hair who cock-blocked me from Judd when we had the human chain across Route 18 where a freshman had been hit by a car the year before. We close on Judd's hand, reaching for Annabelle's, but finding Lauren's instead. As Annabelle watches them go... Judd's hand found Lauren's instead. They've been on again, off again, ever since, but mostly on. And we're back in the restaurant in the present. Hallie is getting up to leave as a busboy clears their table. Okay, yeah, lunch is over. But there are five more moments. I just wish one of them were you saying, Hi, I'm Annabelle. But hi, I'm Annabelle might lead to, Bye, not interested, and I can't chance that. This way, Judd and I can be in each other's lives forever. What we have is special. Oh, it's special, all right. She turns to the busboy. Do not end up like this special lady. She leaves, off the busboy giving Annabelle a sweet pat. Mm. We go to Annabelle's studio apartment that night. She's FaceTiming on her laptop with her mother, Marilyn, age 55, a bundle of energy, always seeking an outlet. Am I a special lady? And we intercut with the Phipps living room in Seattle. Marilyn scissor kicks on the floor in front of her laptop. Well, you most certainly are. My special lady. Annabelle's brother, Russell, age 20, clearly gay, but not out to his oblivious mother, crosses through. Uh, have you seen my leg warmers? Oh, they're in the dryer. Say hello to your sister. Hey, sister, go, sister, soul, sister, flow, sister. He dance exits to the kitchen. He just got back from spin class. I think he has a crush on his instructor, Kelly. <laughs> he might not. <laughs> down. Is everything okay? No, everything's fine. Is it a boy? I noticed Bart posted some lovely haikus on your Facebook page. Those are lyrics. Those are obscure Julio Iglesias song lyrics. Oh, shoot, honey. I gotta run. The judge in charge of the jury I'm on is sequestering us, so I need to pack an overnight bag. <laughs> Hey, if you don't hear from me for a few days, don't worry. I'm in the hands of the criminal justice system. Where you belong. Gorgeous and funny. Oh, Kelly's a lucky lady. <laughs> Marilyn blows Annabelle a kiss and hangs up, and we end the intercut. We're in Annabelle's apartment. She closes her laptop, picks up a remote, and instead of pointing it at her TV, points it at her curtains, which part to reveal a building across the way. She dims her lights, takes out binoculars, and looks out the window. We see Judd's loft, where he and Lauren watch It's Always Sunny in bed. Let me ask you something. If you had the chance to watch your crush in a never-ending Snapchat, would you? Yes, you would. And that's exactly what this is. A Snapchat with no time limit and an unwanted blonde menace. Eat a cheeseburger, you clown. <laughs> Judd and Lauren kiss to Annabelle's barf sounds, and then Judd turns off the TV and powers down his cell. Brightening, Annabelle takes out her phone, hits a number, and listens. Hey, it's Judd. I'm not here right now, so leave a message. Thanks. <laughs> Annabelle smiles, hangs up, and dials again. When she spots something out the window, she looks back through the binoculars. We see Lauren twist something off her finger and place it on her bedside table. Intrigued, Annabelle focuses in on the table, and we see a diamond ring. <gasps> That's an engagement ring! No! And we go wide on Annabelle as she continues screaming, no! then widen outside her window, no! above her building, above the city, above no! the country, above the earth, as the no continues. And we end act one.
Act two, we're interior Z. A few nights later, we're close on a giant flaming sidecar. Reveal Erica, 27, and two other friends presenting it to Hallie at a bar table in a crowded 1920s speakeasy. They're drunk. Happy birthday! <laughs> Make a wish! I wish that flapper would get back here with the absinthe cart! Pan right to reveal Annabelle next to her with her eyes closed. I wish that Judd had not engaged. I prayed this day would never come. I literally went to St. Patrick's and prayed. But it's here, and I need to face it, or I need to get a life. Oh, please, God, send me a sign of what that life should be. Out on the street, a drunk Judd slams into Z's front window. Well, that's not a door. Uh. <laughs> uh. Annabelle can't believe it. It's Judd. She looks to the heavens. I'll never doubt your glory again. She watches, rapt, as Judd and some friends enter and head to the bar. Hallie leans over, slurping her sidecar. You want some? I think I backwashed. Uh, yeah. Uh, is it finally time for a tenth meaningful moment? But what would that moment be? What would Zelda, Fitzger <laughs> what would Zelda Fitzgerald do? Is a question no woman should ever ask herself. <laughs> what are you looking at? Hallie looks around, then spots Judd at the bar and darkens. You've got to be kidding me. He just walked in, I swear. Bullshit. No, I swear. It, it's my birthday, and guess what I want? I got you a glass duck, and I saw it in a catalog, and, and I don't know why I did that. I'm just really... You're going to meet... <laughs> you... You're going to meet Judd. She Wh tries to yank Annabelle off her chair to drag her to Judd. No, Hallie, I can't. No. Yep, yep. Fluff your chin. Hallie, no, not like this. <laughs> yep, exactly like this. Off Annabelle trying to stop Hallie from dragging her to Judd. We're exterior of Z. Moments later, Annabelle, Hallie, Erica, and friends are ejected by a bouncer dressed like a newsie. Thanks for ruining my birthday. I, I didn't ruin your birthday. Erica vomits against the building. The other two help her. Erica's ruining it. You suck, Annabelle. I didn't know Jed would be here. I made this reservation a month ago. Jed never plans that far ahead. You're a liar and a stalker, which is illegal, by the way. You charge your rent to your boss's credit card. That's illegal, too. Uh, I am in a pretty twisted emotional affair with my boss and his husband. I earned that rent. You're a stalker, and it's pathetic. Okay, it's your birthday, so I'm not gonna take any of this personally. I want you to take it personally. You're a dumpster, dumpster fire. This is why you failed the Are You a Good Friend quiz I sent you. I never took that quiz. I never take any of your dumb quizzes that you send me. Stop sending them to me. Well, then I want my jacket back. Hallie takes off her jacket. Well, then I want my, my skirt back. Annabelle pulls down her skirt. Then I want my jeans back. Hallie undoes her jeans. Okay, yeah, you're gonna get your dumb jeans. And we're on the street later that night. Annabelle stumbles home alone, super drunk, now dressed in the outfit Hallie was just wearing and muttering to herself. I'm pathetic. You're pathetic, Hallie. What's Hallie even short for? Hallicent? Ugh, that's awful. Ugh, I couldn't just meet Chuck like that. Women are supposed to be mysterious. That was the whole point of the Are You Mysterious Enough quiz I sent you and you never took. And we angle on a sketchy-looking guy following her. I should just... I should just call him. You won't hear his phone, though, because he's had a great bar with drinks made of fire. As Annabelle raccoons through her purse for her phone, her wallet falls out. Mm. The sketchy guy grabs it and runs off. Oblivious to that, she dials Judd's number, then hangs up. No. No, I'm going to go back, and I'm going to say, Judd, like that drink? Your world just exploded, because I just... Then Annabelle stumbles into the street and gets hit by a bus. We smash to black. We're interior New York Presbyterian Hospital room later that night. 
We stay black as we hear a heart monitor beeping. The camera blinks to life like an eye catching glimpses of the ceiling. A nurse changing an IV. Judd Fleming, a TV. Pan back to Judd. By the way, these are videos mixed with dialogue. So, oh my god, am I dead? Why is he here? We reveal Annabelle in bed, barely conscious. Her head is bandaged, save one bruised eye. Judd is by her bedside, watching her. Did I call him? Did Howie? Oh, wow, his eyelashes are as long as my last attempt at bangs. Annabelle tries to move her hand to her face, but can't. Oh, oh no, am I paralyzed? I couldn't even watch the trailer for that Stephen Hawking movie. I just, oh. <laughs> she groans, trying hard to move her hand. Then she farts. No. Another fart. <laughs> Judd can't help but recoil a little. God, stop farting, you monster. Dr. Roz, 40s, enters as the nurse is checking Annabelle. Doctor, there was a small amount of stool released. <laughs> Okay, I guess we're just leaving it there. Well, that's my Jane. Is, is that her name, Jane? Uh, Jane Doe. Do you know her real name? Because she knows yours, or at least your number. The cops got it off her phone. It was the last number in her recent calls. Do they have it, her phone? Yeah, well, Officer Butterfingers dropped it down a subway grate. No wallet either, not sure why. Uh, yeah, I guess she's a little hard to recognize right now. Kind of. Why am I hard to recognize? Annabelle spies a reflection of her bandaged head in a monitor. Ah! Oh, I'm dark man. Ah! Hopefully, once she regains consciousness, she can just tell us, tell you who she is. I super definitely can't do that. Yeah, she suffered some major trauma. Her memory may be affected. Uh, just warning you, you're all she's got. Dr. Raz. <laughs> Dr. Roz exits with the nurse as this lands on Judd. Oh, he's going to bolt. He has that same look on his face when he knocked over those figurines at Saks six years ago. Judd? They turn to see Lauren in the doorway. God, this bitch. The cops called me. I heard. Who's our new friend? I'm not your friend, Ivanka. I don't know. She had my number. Oh, she had your number. Great. No, no. Oh, it must be from someone at work or softball. We have a really intricate phone chain in place for when practice gets canceled. <laughs> okay, can we just go home? No! No, the doctor said I'm all she's got. But you're not. She's got the doctor and all these nurses, like the surly one who wouldn't tell me where room 213 East is. But I can't just leave her. Oh. Oh my god, he wants to stay. Uh, sure you can, if she's just from work or softball. Our team is really close. <laughs> I am really close. Oh wow, this is happening. All right, calm down. I am calm. This is a good hospital that will take good care of whoever this is, which the police will figure out. So let's let the nice professionals do their jobs and go home and pack for Miami. Okay. No, not okay! Judd goes over to Annabelle. Hey. Hey, you. I gotta go. No, you gotta stay! Annabelle starts to groan. <laughs> <trying> to <talk>. <laughs> Shh! <laughs> it's all right. S stand back, she's gonna blow. <laughs> 
Everything's fine. Just, just relax. But I can't. I, I, I. Final series of groans turns into a line set out. I love you, Judd Fleming. Everything stops. Oops. Annabelle and Judd both look at Lauren, who's shocked and stung. Guess your team is really close. Lauren. She removes her engagement ring, throws it at Judd, and exits. Lauren! Judd grabs the ring and runs after her, leaving Annabelle alone. Wait till that busboy hears about this. <laughs> and that's the end of Act Two. <laughs> Act Three. Over a black screen. My dad says I care about other people too much, but it's just how I'm wired, I guess. And we begin a montage. We're interior of the Porter School 21 years ago. Little kids in uniform enjoy recess, including six-year-old Judd, who's happily playing with Legos. As he aims a spaceship piloted by horses at a knight's castle, he spots another little boy sitting sadly by himself. He gets an idea. We cut to J young Judd and the little boy, happily obliterating the castle gates with the horse spaceship together. Next, we're on a New York City street 15 years ago. 12-year-old Judd walks home from school in his uniform. He passes a sad old lady sitting outside her brownstone in a folding chair, watching life go by. He gets an idea. The next day, 12-year-old Judd and the old lady play gin rummy on her stoop. She nervously points out a cockroach skittering by on the sidewalk. Judd squashes it, and the old lady cheers. We're at Princeton University six years ago. 21-year-old Judd is taking a morning run through campus. He spots a male classmate passed out half in and half out of his dorm room window. He gets his, an idea, and a short time later, Judd tucks his barf-covered classmate into bed, wincing at the smell. He grabs cologne off of his dresser and sprays the room. Now we're in Judd's building, morning, several days after the end of Act Two. Lost in thought, Judd watches Annabelle in a wheelchair, being raised into a handicapped van by the van's driver. Come and get your love is heard coming from the van's radio. Annabelle's head is not as bandaged and one leg's in a cast. I mean, someone has to care about this girl. Dr. Raz thinks she has amnesia, which I thought wasn't a thing, but apparently it is. So, I have a new roommate. And we cut to a plastic surgeon's office a short time later. A doctor hums, come and get your love, as he changes Annabelle's head bandages. Judd watches him, still thinking. Now that Lauren's gone, maybe for good this time, it's nice to have someone around. But who is she? And we're in a physical therapy gym a short time later. A physical therapist demonstrates how to work Annabelle out with resistance bands. Come and Get Your Love is played by a marching band during a college football game on the TV above them. Judd studies Annabelle. She could be Amanda Russo. She kind of looks like Amanda, like her hands do, like the shape of them. When did I become a hand guy? Another mystery. And we're at New York Prez in radiology. Annabelle slowly slides into an MRI machine. A Muzak version of Come and Get Your Love can be heard softly coming out of it. Judd watches Annabelle disappear until he can only see her feet. He stares at them deep in thought. I am not a foot guy. But those are, those are cute feet. What's her name had cute feet? Marin, Carol Wu, too. Wow, I was with a lot of girls the last time Lauren and I broke up. 
Am I a whore? Judd has accidentally said this out loud. We angle on an MRI technician holding the door open for Judd. I can't answer that for you, sir. Dr. Roz taps on the glass, gesturing for Judd to join him in the control room. Judd turns to Annabelle. Don't worry, I'll be right next door. The MRI technician ushers Judd out and the MRI starts firing. In the MRI, inside the sound is deafening, but Annabelle is all smiles. I told you it was great! How right was I? Very right! As Annabelle slowly slides out of the MRI machine. And don't worry, I don't really have amnesia. They thought I did and I went with it. Now I just have to figure out who from Judd's life I can pretend to be. But luckily, I'm a pretty good actress. Dr. Roz and Judd enter and approach Annabelle. How are we doing? Hi, Grandpa. Is this Mars? <laughs> Dr. Roz nods at Judd. Annabelle smiles at the camera proudly. We're in Central Park a little later. Judd pushes a happy Annabelle along in her wheelchair. And I know, pretend amnesia can't last forever and these bandages have to come off eventually. But it can last a little while and maybe these bandages will fuse with my skin. I never walk through the park. It's so beautiful and it's right here. Like you. What? Hmm? No, uh, nothing. I thank you for taking care of me. It's really sweet. Oh, no, come on. You hungry? You want a hot dog? All, all my food has to be pureed. Oh, right. I knew that. <laughs> they continue down the path, passing a light pole with a flyer on it that says, Have you seen Annabelle Phipps? Please call Hallie Jenkins at 917-202-8447 below Annabelle's picture. Neither of them notices it. We're in Judd's loft that night. Judd is on the floor with Annabelle doing the resistance band exercises with her. He's wearing his stretched out gym shirt from the cold open and Annabelle is clearly transfixed. Okay, I know I have other things to think about, but look at his arms. Do you remember falling into Barry Diller's pool last summer? Hmm, last summer? He thinks I'm that model he was pictured with in Vanity Fair, Carolina Karov. He thinks I'm a Russian model. Uh, that kind of rings a bell. No, wait, she was part of the bling ring that stole his Rolex. Um, but also, no, that's not me. Damn. Well, I know I know you. How? Because I like talking to you. It's so easy, like, we've known each other forever. Plus, you stopped that lady who dropped her glove. I just hate thinking about people getting home and realizing, oh no, my glove, <laughs> and then they have to throw the other one out and, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the matching scarf is never the same. Yeah. They both smile, simpatico. Then Judd gets up. Hungry now? I can throw some pizza bagels in the blender. <laughs> what? Yeah, no, that's gross sounding. Um, okay. Be right back. Okay. <laughs> Judd exits. Annabelle wheels herself over to the window and looks down at her window across the way, which we see. A few days ago, if you had told the girl who lives there that I would be here, even I would have said... Her eyes widen. We see what she does. Hallie entering her apartment with her mother and brother, wheeling suitcases. Mom? Interior, Annabelle's studio apartment. Hallie helps Russell with the suitcases. Marilyn can't help but rearrange the sofa cushions frantically. Whatever we do, we can't panic. Okay. <laughs> For the record... You've been full-on panicking since Haley called us. And now I am not. <laughs> Over in Judd's loft, Annabelle sits, still in shock. Oh, I need to call Haley. 
in Judd's living room a short time later, Judd returns with a bowl of pizza bagel soup. Confused to find Annabelle gone, he looks around, unsure how to call her. Uh, girl? Jane Doe person? The doorbell rings. Judd answers to find Lauren. Hi. Can we talk? Uh, yeah. Come in. Lauren enters, noticing the soup Judd's holding. What's that? Uh, it's soup for me. Wow, that is very terrible. <laughs> Lauren picks the resistance bands up off the floor. You, uh, you hurt your shoulder again? What? Oh, yeah. I hurt it real bad, moving a basket of uh, anvils. <laughs> he, he flinches at the awfulness of the lie. Lauren sizes him up. You brought her home, didn't you? They discharged her and she had nowhere to go. Well, where is she? And we're in Annabelle's building basement as Hallie descends the dark stairs with a flashlight. We hear Russell off screen. Need any help? No, the lights go out here all the time. Go back to your mom. I'd really rather not. Go! <laughs> Hallie goes over to the electrical panel. She's about to untrip the breakers when Annabelle rolls out of the shadows. Don't make a sound. Hallie screams <laughs> and hits Annabelle with her flashlight. Help! Hallie! Jesus! Annabelle? What happened to you? <sighs> a lot. Why is my mother here? Uh, because I called her? Where have you been? Why haven't you called me back? I was mad at you. Also, I lost my phone when I got hit by a bus, and I live with Judd Fleming now. <laughs> what? What are you talking about? Oh, I got hit by a bus, and when I woke up, Judd was there, and he thinks I have amnesia, and I'm going with it. But who does he think you are? Um, well, sometimes he thinks I'm a model. Look, look, you wanted me to meet Judd, right? Well. I met him, and he is as spectacular up close as he is from far. Suddenly, Hallie hugs Annabelle near tears. I thought you were dead. Oh. Annabelle is surprised and touched by Hallie's hug. I'm sorry, I'm alive, and I need your help and your phone. Okay. In Annabelle's apartment, a little later, the apartment is dark. Marilyn has the contents of Annabelle's kitchen cabinets on the counter and is furiously scrubbing the shelves. Suddenly, the lights go back on, as does the TV. Oh, finally. Marilyn's phone rings. Blocked caller. She answers. What happened? Annabelle? And we intercut with the basement. Hola. Hi. Greetings from Miami. And now we intercut with Merritt Fleming. On the phone in his cubicle, Bart is confused. You're still in Miami? So the following dialogue will be intercut so it plays as one continuous conversation. Yep. Been here since Friday. I can't believe Hal's didn't tell you. Well, she didn't. I've been so worried. I mean, I, 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 I've been hiding it well. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to freak you out. Mm -hmm. it, it's okay. Shall I fly down and join you? I just need to convert some Amazon points into miles. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, I'll be back soon. Well, I didn't know how long we'd be here, so I bought one-way tickets. Do you mind if Russell and I stay a little while at your place? He wants to see Dear Evan Hansen and Mean Girls and Frozen. And Brian Cranston in Network. Oh, I bet he'll be good. Uh, stay as long as you want. <laughs> okay, bye, Mom. Love you. Bye, Bart. Uh, I'll work remotely. And we end the intercut. Annabelle hangs up. Hallie gives her an incredulous look. Stay as long as you want? Yeah, I shouldn't have said that. No, you shouldn't have. And how are you going to work remotely? How is any of this going to work? I don't know, but we'll figure it out. Your mom's going to want to hang out with me. Uh, she's definitely going to want that. Just, just go numb. 
And we're in the living room of Judd's loft. Lauren is distractedly pulling on a resistance band. Judd is on the phone. Okay. Thanks, David. The doorman hasn't seen her. His name's David? Yes. <laughs> There's a clang at the front door. Judd opens it to find Annabelle, whose wheelchair is tangled in the hall rug. <laughs> a little help here? Oh, thank God. Judd frees the wheelchair and helps Annabelle inside. Oh, I'm sorry, I just... She sees Lauren and is completely thrown. No, I vanquished you. Where'd you go? Uh, I, I thought I remembered where I lived. You live here now. <laughs> right? Right. And we close on Lauren's hand as she plays with her engagement ring. Her ring's back? Nah, I was only gone an hour. Judd takes a close look at the bandages around Annabelle's eye. Oh no, what happened here? Oh, it's just pus from my eye socket. It's been, it's been leaking all day. Lauren clocks this moment between Judd and Annabelle. I'll get some tissues. Judd exits. Lauren quietly gets in Annabelle's face. I don't know who you are or what game you're playing, but I'm good at games too, and I'm going to find out. She exits after Judd. Well, that was terrifying. <laughs> but I can play too, with a little help from my best friend. She looks out the window and gives Hallie a big thumbs up. We angle on Annabelle's window where a chatty Marilyn is braiding Hallie's hair. <laughs> Hallie gives Annabelle the middle finger back. Annabelle squints. Was that her thumb? That was her thumb, right? Yeah, that was her thumb. Yeah. Annabelle smiles and gives Hallie another big thumbs up. In Judd's loft, a short time later, Judd and Annabelle face each other like Samantha and Jake at the end of 16 Candles. <laughs> a song is playing on Spotify. Judd dabs Annabelle's eye with a tissue. There. That's better. <laughs> Thanks. I'm such a mess. The song ends, and different drum, the song Annabelle was listening to in the cold open, starts to play. Oh, wow, I love this song. Me too. Linda Ronstadt's voices, what's up? I didn't know he loved Linda Ronstadt. What else do I know about you, Judd Fleming? I'm sorry about Lauren. She's not mad at you, she's, she's mad at me. She's mad at me a lot. Well, if you ever need to talk, I mean, not that I know anything. You know a lot. And don't worry, we're gonna figure out who you are. Judd reaches for Annabelle's hand. We flash to Judd's hand reaching out on their camping trip, but this time it finds Annabelle's instead. Annabelle stares at their hands in disbelief, then looks over at Lauren, staring daggers from the next room. And the maimed shall inherit the earth. Annabelle smiles as different drum plays us out. We smash to black, end of show. into reading glasses because Bria and Mallory have great tips. You're a comics reader and you want to use a library connected app, you can try out Hoopla. I listen for the author interviews. I'm mad at myself that I waited as long as I did to start reading Joan Didion. They give me reading advice I didn't even know I needed. If you go in person to an event and go up to an author or a filmmaker or anybody and tell them what they you don't like about their work, you're a trash baby. I, look, I understand you didn't like Heroes Season 3, that's fine. I like, I don't... <laughs> actually need to know that information. 
I'm Brea Grant. And I'm Mallory O'Mara. We're Reading Glasses, and we solve all your bookish problems every Thursday on Maximum Fun. All right, I'm here with Billy Finnegan, uh, who I just met at the reading. This is this is nice and fresh, because we just yes. did it yesterday. We did. Um, and I guess I should start with a feature of these interviews, mm-hmm. where I tell you my favorite joke. Okay. Um, and there were a couple. That's good. I love the line when Bart says, how about we Lady in the Tramp some ramen tonight? Okay, it's I like a nice that too. little yeah. one. And then I really loved Hallie's line where she says, I'm in a pretty twisted emotional affair with my <laughs> boss and his husband. I earned that rent. Yeah. There was, it told us so much yes. in one line yeah. about this character who you know, we, we hadn't yeah. until then learned that much about. Yeah. And just a great joke. I like that scene too because, if I can say that, having written it, but because there, it's a real friends argument. Like they really are these two people who know so much about each other who are just laying it all out there. Yeah. And just throwing every grenade at each other that they know will get a response or that they've been wanting to say for them forever. That was like, that was one of the scenes I was the most looking forward to hearing and actually enjoyed. Like was happy that I was like, oh, that was good. That worked. Yeah. But you never know. Like you, you never know. It works in your mind, but it might not work when people do it or... Yeah, so I was. But happy. it was clear that it was love. There was love yeah. behind all of it, but right. real feelings. Yes. And there is there are other things where you you feel like your friends making a, a mistake. Yeah, which Alex it's certainly tough did. To say. Yeah, yeah. So before we get into talking more about the pilot, I want to start um, just hearing about how you got your start in the business. In the business, yeah. So where are you from? I'm from Cranford, New Jersey which is exit 137 on the Garden State Parkway. I can see the skyline from the uh, exit ramp, um, but it's about 40 minutes outside of New York City. Okay. There's no traffic. Um, and I graduated from college and I worked in casting first in New York uh, at NBC. And I really enjoyed it, but I kind of always wanted to be a writer. And eventually uh, I was in New York. I started writing plays which was, I guess, good for the soul, not so good for the the pocketbook. Um, But, you know, got my pinky, I always said I got my pinky toe like in the door, had this like play done at the Summer Play Festival at the Public in 2008. And from that, I got an agent and I got a manager who was based in LA through a friend out here, my friend Mimi Schmier, who her secret wish has always been for me to move to LA so this was just part of her master plan of getting me out here but it was um, a young manager named Dan McManus who was just being promoted and he came to New York to see the play and he said do you have any TV ideas and I said I yeah I have TV ideas and I had a, a spec script I have I had written called Busy Bodies which was about a uh, well at the time it was just about a a gay stay-at-home dad who moves to the suburbs and just becomes friends with the stay-at-home mom next door and they just get into trouble together. But it was 2008 and I think there was a feeling that a half hour, I mean, was was the half hour dead again in 2008? I'm not remembering. It's died so I many think every, times. Every other, pretty much every other year. Was it even year? So yeah. It's probably yeah. dead. Yeah. So they, they decided I should turn it into a comedic procedural. So I turned it into a show where the gay stay-at-home dad moves into a house in the suburbs where a Jean Benet Ramsey-sized murder happened that had never been solved. 
and he and the stay-at-home mom next door who lived there when the murder happened, they solved the crime. So we sold it to USA, Characters Welcome, and uh, Blue Sky. And uh, so that was my first like TV job, was wow. selling a pilot. So I sort of did it different from the way a lot of people do it, which I feel like is you, you, know, you, you make your way into a room and then you develop after that. I started out, I sold that pilot to USA, another pilot to USA, did staffing season in 2009. So neither of those pilots? Both got, dead. Both. My first two dead pilots. Okay. Yeah. I started out just killing them. Uh, the, the busy bodies got close, though. It really did. Like, they, USA really loved it. We, they passed on it. But then um, Bill McGoldrick came from, I want to say, TNT or TBS. And he really liked it. So he tried to resuscitate it. But it was dead. So it was dead. Tw- that one died twice, actually. Um, but uh, after, so I did staffing season in 2009. Had a horrible interview for Sons of Tucson where like the guys who were lovely and I had actually gone to college with one of them, um, didn't know why they were meeting me. I had watched, read the pilot and liked it. And I think, but they, it was just, it was just a terrible meeting. And then the following staffing season got no showrunner meetings, but I was still living in New York. So I would come out to LA, stay with a friend and I was fine either way. You know, I was developing those pilots and I thought, if I get a job, I'm going to have to move to L.A., which I was kind of scared of doing. And if I don't get a job, I get to go home. So, and do you still have the casting day job in, at this point? Or no. no? You, nope. So you've just got the money from selling the pilots. I had the you? money. That was finally like, um, yeah, that was a thing. Like 2009 was the first year that I was getting paid to like work in television. And it was great. You know, the theater for me had always been this. I always feel like it was me walking into a party the th- me trying to get into the theater was like me walking into a party and everybody was just like, oh, no. And they would just avert their eyes. Be like, oh, no, 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 please, no. But with TV, I came out here and it, everybody was like, hello, how are you? Have a drink, have water, have money. Like they really, I think it helped to be a writer from New York, a playwright, a playwright. from New York. Yeah, they, they had no idea that I was nobody. They thought you know this play I had done could have I could have told people it was on Broadway and right. no one would have checked right. except right. for one like gay assistant would have been like he's lying um, and it always feels good when you have on your side you can say I just hired this playwright right. from New York right so I classic. and again I never thought that would have any cachet but I just sort of lucked in a lot of a lot of it was for me was really feeling very lucky to have had you know my friend Mimi introduced me to Dan at, at that moment and then Dan introducing me to his boss, Ann Blanchard, who he was, they were both managers at the time. And they just believed in me. They just saw this play. They liked it. They liked me. They liked this idea. And then I, you know, got lucky that USA was looking for something like that. There was a lot, there were a lot of lucky breaks that year. But my third staffing season, um, Ann Blanchard, I think, hounded Nanachka Khan to read me for Don't Trust the Bee in Apartment 23. And that was my lucky break into a writer's room, which couldn't have been luckier because she was amazing. And the staff was fantastic. I loved the show. You know, Anne could have just as easily hounded someone on a show that I was totally wrong for. And I could have had a terrible experience and everybody could have been a nightmare. But again, like it was the right show. Like I was I was excited to do it. And Notch was like the best boss. And so I 
And then from there, it really, I've been able to sort of work steadily since then. So where'd you go from there? So we did two um, 13 episode seasons and then I was on Bad Teacher uh, in 2013 and I developed uh, for NBC that same season, which was my third dead pilot called Gunkle, which also got close. You know, like I did the whole, you know, they threw out my first story area, but then I came up with, I had a nervous breakdown <laughs> on a weekend. And then I remember I woke up the next day and I was supposed to drive to Laguna to see my sister. And it's just like, I think I was in the shower and it just like all clicked. I was like, if I do this, 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 and then I felt better. That's how it works. Yeah, so it's crazy. Yeah. I don't know if you've heard those. I, I really think I read this. I've talked, maybe you've talked about this in the podcast before, but Aaron Sorkin, I read an interview where it says he takes like five to ten showers a day <laughs> right. because it's just like that. Yeah. And I just am too concerned about water use to do, to do that. But yes. it is the shower. It's I know. Something, someone tell me that. Something mm-hmm. about taking all your clothes off and just. Yeah. Yeah. So that so, that, so that, that one what did Gunkle, what did that, was, was that a great uncle? What did that mean? What did gay Gunkle? uncle. Oh, gay so uncle. I'm a, okay. So the pitch was, okay. I am a gay uncle to, uh, I think at the time it was like seven-year-old Bruno and five-year-old Cha-Cha, who are my sister's kids who live in Washington, D.C., and I had to be in D.C. for work, so I found myself sort of like the go-to babysitter for the kids and the go-between between my sister and her husband. Okay. And so that was the show. It was just pulled from my life. I showed an adorable picture of my adorable niece and nephew. My third niece, Sophia, wasn't born yet. Um, and it sold. And I had to live that dream of like selling in the room. Like I sold it all four broadcast networks. NBC wanted it the most. And the development process went well. I got to the call with Jen Salky and did that. And everyone's like, people started calling me about casting ideas. And I was like, I don't really want to talk about it yet. It feels premature and feels like, a, you know, I'm, I'm too superstitious. And sure enough, dead. So that was the third dead pilot. And then, uh, then I got Grace and Frankie. And where you stayed for the next five, five seasons. seasons. And, and you had some pilots during. I had a pilot during the first season of Grace and Frankie that died. And then I had a I had a, a spec pilot that sold, I think during the third or fourth season, that died, and then, 2017, I had uh, Annabelle Phipps for Fox, which uh, died, <laughs> <laughs> which is what which we read brings us here. Yeah, um, it's such an interesting structure. Or pilot, mm-hmm. I love. I mean, I remember the first time reading it when it got to that point where the POV switches yeah. from Annabelle to Judd, and mm-hmm. I was just like, "This is really cool." You Can I don't tell you? See that? Yeah, that was a network note. Really? Yeah, that you was. Did, that wasn't in your nope. initial conception. That was uh, Michael Thorne at Fox uh, wanted more of Judd. He felt like the show is between Annabelle and Judd, which it is, and he just felt like he wasn't getting enough Judd. And um, I developed it with Nanachka Khan. She had a deal at uh, 20th. And uh, when I was looking to develop, I was trying to think of who I wanted to do it with. And I was like, oh, I want to do it with Notch. And I, uh, I wrote to her and I said, hey, no pressure. But if you're at all looking to develop with anybody, I'd love to. I have this idea. I would love to pitch to you. And she was just like, yes. Before I even see it, yes, I'll do it. And then I pitched it to her and she loved it. And um, but yeah, we. We got some notes and he had pitched something. He didn't pitch. I don't think he pitched that 
solve, but he pitched he wanted more of Judd. And I think Notch may have pitched the idea, I can't even remember now, the idea of him having a voiceover like Annabelle had had, but I think she wanted it later. And then I think when I sort of, after that network call and after the call with Notch afterwards, I sort of went and sort of took everything and was like, how do I do this? How do I make it all work? And I was like, oh wait, if I put the voiceover there, feels good having it at the top of act three and it's like a fresh sort of start to the pilot and then and in doing that that's where he becomes more than just this sort of right himbo kind of right you, you this, see that he is this incredibly caring yeah charitable lovely guy lovely guy yeah was he so he was already that in your yes in he your was mind? always going to be that but i thought you would see that in episode two you know i kind of always thought that like episode two would start with him like having to bathe her because she's a got she's still all bandaged up so he's got like a bag on her head and he's got her like in the shower and he's in a bathing suit which would be spectacular <laughs> and she's you know when you go inside of her head at the top of the episode she's basically orgasmic <laughs> because she's in a shower with him and but i sort of thought that that would come out at the end of the pilot but also i figured maybe sometime in or in the second episode a lot of the process of developing it really was sucking stuff I had pitched for episode two and season one, sucking it into the pilot. It's kind of made me realize that the more you give them, the more they want all of it. Right. You know? Yeah. I often tell people, don't save anything <laughs> right. for episode two. Episode You're right. two will work itself out. You're right. But I've had the same thing. It's like, oh, this will be so great in episode two. And then I have someone who's like, well, it'll be great in episode two. It'll be even better in the pilot <laughs> right. because there's chances <laughs> are we won't get to episode right. two. Let's make it, let's pack yeah. this full of every great moment yeah. that I can think of. Yeah. Um, but was there ever, your, your protagonist is a stalker. Yeah. Was that something that was immediately, people were like, we love that, that's great. Yeah, I mean, Susanna Makos, who has always been, for me, the best person to pitch to. She's just always been so warm and so sort of quick to laugh. And she laughed out loud as soon as I said it. And because the pitch really, I can't remember exactly how it started, but it's, I said very quickly that she's a stalker. And, um, and then there was a joke about, you know, about Lauren, his girlfriend, like the end, I remember the end of the first paragraph of the pitch was something like, but more on that goddamn bitch later. <laughs> so you sort of got that she was, you that somehow weirdly people would laugh at that too. And I think that got people on Annabelle's side weirdly, but I spent a lot of the pitch was the pitch was the pilot story. It really was me reading. I read all of my pitches. I mean, I lift my head for the punchlines, but I really just read them because I spent so much time writing them perfectly the way I want it. So I just read it. But it was... Um, so all the twists, you had all the twists in the pilot. I had, I definitely had that she got, you know, she gets hit by the bus, but she wakes up in the hospital. Um, I, the, the story was different. So we, another thing that happened in the development process and I think Notch pitched this, was Hall uh, Hallie originally wasn't going to know where she was in the pilot. But we decided, I can't remember what the note was, that Annabelle should reach out to Hallie. Like, again, it was going to happen probably in episode two, but we decided that in the pilot, Annabelle should reach out to Hallie and tell her where she is and get her involved in her scheme to pretend to be whoever she's going to decide to be in Judd's life and, and live with him and somehow keep her mother feeling okay about it and her boss you know neutralized um 
so we so so the story the story was different but the pitch ended the pitch ended with the end of season one which was that it all comes out basically that she's been pretending to be this other person what's happened over season one was lauren and annabelle become friends like she goes from hating this girl to like actually really liking her and seeing this other side of Judd, you know, she's seeing all the, you know, everything now. And, but anyway, it all comes out. And when it finally does, you know, she, she has this, I would do this speech that she gives to Judd where she's like, you know, I've been, I've been in love with you since I first saw you when I was 18. And you of course wouldn't remember. And he's like, I remember you. And you sort of flash back through the nine meaningful moments that mean so much to her, some of which are in the pilot. And you, you see his perspective on it. But then he says there was a moment before your first moment when he was driving into campus. He was in the backseat of his parents' car and she was in the backseat of her mother's car. And he looked over and saw her and waved and she just didn't see him. And she's like, I didn't see you. And he's like, well, maybe I didn't always see you. And she's like, well, now what do we do? And he's like, I don't know, crazy girl. Like, I don't, I, can't, I don't know. So that was sort of, like, that was the end of the pitch, which I think was a nice hook for... And, and, and feeling of like, oh, there's more to tell here. Right. Because that's what I wanted to do was put all these people together. You know, Hallie is going to, you know, Annabelle's mother comes to town. She, I called it like her mom springer in New York City. <laughs> so she basically like moves to New York and she like rediscovers her or discovers herself for the first time. And her brother who's gay like comes out, you know, and is, gets to be a gay boy in New York City. And Hallie who in the pilot says, I'm going to have to hang out with your mother, aren't I? And Annabelle's like, yeah, just go numb. She, they become, like, she likes having a mom. So it's like all of these things, all of these people end up in their lives, in each other's lives, but they, they, there's a good side to it that they didn't expect. So I think Annabelle, when she, in season two, the idea would be that she has to deal with all these new versions of these people that either she's caused or that her doing this actually caused. Like, that was the thing. Right. So. What about Bart? So Bart, what I thought would be funny is, you know, Annabelle dated him. And he's, I like a, I like a confident nerd. Yeah. You know, I like. No, yeah, I found him a very lovable yeah. character. So I thought that Hallie would, would fall for him. And Annabelle would have a problem with that. Because, you know, she's. But, but Hallie's like, but you don't, you don't want to date him anymore. She's like, no, but you used to always make fun of him. But that, like, you know, he's. He's like a good guy, and um, I decided very good in bed. And Hallie just <laughs> like just was shocked, but you know, so they started hooking up, and then she kind of fell for him. I just like the idea of Hallie, who's this, you know, confident sort of uh, no nonsense girl, falling for just someone who's so different from her. Um, so you really had, I mean, these are. Yeah, I really thought about good it. good idea. I mean, yeah. all these dynamics are very fleshed yeah. out. And yeah. had a lot of plays. Did, that must have, uh, I have to imagine, made it harder when it came to it. When it died? Yeah. Look, I, everybody, the, the development process went well. Everybody felt super good about it and felt like it had a really good shot. But, you know, while we were developing it, Fox and Disney merged that whole thing of 20th separating from Fox and... And it basically changed. It felt like it was going to change. It felt like it changed the kind of network Fox was while we were developing it. So all the executives stayed there. I never felt, I was never being pushed to do anything to the script or anything. But I just, when that happened, I thought, this is not great for us. 
but we still we, we finished the development process people really thought it was going to get picked up i mean i started to think maybe it would i was getting you know emails about directors and all of this stuff from the agencies but i just either i'm such a pessimist or i've been through it and gotten the no so many times that i just i just wasn't shocked right. so i but i was you know like for me these ideas they all, they all have these like different lives. Like sometimes you have an idea and it's never more than an idea. Sometimes you have an idea, you get it to the pitch stage, you don't sell it. You sell the pitch, you get to write the script. But I just, I was grateful to have, I was grateful that Notch liked the idea, that 20th liked the idea, that Fox liked the idea, um, that they helped me make it better. Um, and you know, Notch definitely protected me from certain things that we just didn't think we needed to do. It was great to have her have my back because she, re you know, they, they really respected her. I mean, I felt like they respected me too, but they had a longer relationship with her and she just really helped, helped me make it great. So I, I, I had no, I don't have any ill feeling for it. As far as I'm concerned, I got paid to write. I got paid to write. Right. And having, you know, had years of, feeling like no one was ever gonna read anything like when I was writing plays in New York I just thought what have I done to myself I'm never gonna make a living I you know you were begging people to please read stuff you know and no one would ever want to or would and and so to be here now and you know it's the joke of like now people want to like get me to change the fourth line on page 15 you know, you go from no one will read it to like they're please stop reading it so closely. Right. Like I don't know which is worse. I think the other the the no one will read it is worse because again, like you're getting paid to like do the thing you want to do and and you know I learned a lot. Um, every time you, I feel like every time I write, I get better because you're solving more story problems and coming up with you know good pieces of dialogue to get you whatever something get learn something about a character or get you to the next a good blow to the next scene whatever it is like you're just getting stronger so i i had no yeah i i i was it also was a nice outlet you know being on a staff and developing is hard because it's so much work i would i would have a lot all the times i've been on staff and developed i would work like seven days a week because i would you know I'd, you'd be in the room all week and then you'd probably have time like at night you know sometimes i would be in the room till like seven come home eat dinner and then work from like eight until like one in the morning it's, so hard. And it's hard but there was something great about just being in charge of your own thing it's like i can do anything i want to this you'd have a set of notes or a set of you know things that you maybe had to accomplish on, in a past but i just felt like i get to decide what i do here and that was kind of nice so it was it was it was again i i if you had told me 10 years ago that i would be walking into rooms with my super sweaty hands, with pieces of paper, <laughs> and reading these things and selling them, I just, I'm not a seller. Like I don't, that's not my, I'm, a, I'm just not that guy. I'm not the guy that's like working the room and I'm just, you know, but I think people don't realize how nervous I am, which probably helps. I try to find a way to dry my hands or say I have a cold or, <laughs> you know, wipe my hands off. Or I just found a, a, a lotion called Carpe, which has been working lately, <laughs> which I don't really understand what that sees. I guess it means from like seize the day, but I'm seizing dry hands. Dry hands. Yeah. Like here, seize my well, dry I guess hands. Some of the, the yeah. person you're shaking hands with is seizing. Yes, they're dry seizing hands. your hands. Um, so it's. Do you it, have any kind of ritual before you go into that 
room, other than the lotion? Um, I usually have to. I usually go to the bathroom, wash my hands, dry them off, and hope that by the time I walk back to the waiting room, they'll come get me because they'll stay. They'll usually stay dry for like a minute after I've washed them. <laughs> Um, but a lot of the times I have to wait again. I usually don't sit in the waiting room. I usually sort of pace in the hallway outside. Um, I don't, I, the, the, the outfit I wore yesterday to the reading was the outfit I wore when I sold it, but it's just a t-shirt and jeans, you know, I, cause I feel like uh, it helps me to be comfortable and not hot. And I think I look good in that t-shirt. <laughs> So, um, and I think it makes me look cool, maybe. They're, they think I'm cool. I don't know. Or I'm from New York. I don't know. They, so I, every like, you've got the uniform for every pitch. I don't wear that outfit. I'm trying to think, what did I wear this year? I had a, I had a, a new short sleeve shirt I got from Todd's that, I, that I, when I saw it on the hanger, I was like, it's terrible. And then I put it on. I was like, oh my God, I look great in this. So I had that shirt, and then I had... I probably wore the T-shirt that I wore yesterday. There, yeah, there's like a few outfits where I feel like I look good, I look thin. This is my pitching. This is my, my pitching, pitching uniform. Yeah. So when you heard it yeah. uh, yesterday, what were your th- did it read how you were hoping? What, what were, um, what was going through your head? I learned a lot, I think. I felt like the, you know, it was interesting because the first act is so visual. Like there's a lot of montages and there's a lot of voiceover and she's... So it doesn't lend itself to a reading as well as it would lend itself to watching it on the screen. But even with that, I felt like it was too long. Um, I, I should cut at least probably two or three pages. There might be a better way to get all of that information out. I think it's important to get the meaningful moments on screen, um, but I feel like there's a, maybe a quicker way to do it and a faster way to get to the end of the act but again, like what's interesting is I thought acts two and three landed really well. And I think that all of the setup from act one did pay off. You know, like I set up all those characters. You knew who the mother was when, she, you know, you knew who Bart was. You knew, you know, you needed to know all of those things. Um, so I, but I still think it was, it was, uh, it was just too, it took too long to get going. Yeah. When you do have, I have young kids twins who are 11 and I, they, I just took them to see It's a Wonderful Life uh-huh. and they were saying it's just kind of slow getting started I was just like but didn't you see how every right. single thing pays right. That's off true. and you just had to you have yeah. to spend that time but it is you know television pilots tricky because they're going to test it and, right. and things that starts a little slow right. are tough but I mean I think in this case you have there's such it's such an unusual opening right. for a pilot. Such an unusual character, yeah. and just the whole thing is just so different from what we're we're used to. Yeah. That you know it certainly didn't feel that way. Yeah. To me. Okay. Um, what about the songs? I'm just curious. You know, the because different drum, the mm-hmm. the Stone Ponies, the mm-hmm. Linda Ronstadt song is sort of about. I mean, that song is. Like I don't want a woman who's just gonna be too clingy and like like yeah. me too much. Right? Yeah, I like that. There, it's not on the nose. The what the message of the song is, it's almost reverse. It doesn't. I like the way it doesn't quite fit the moment. First of all, I heard that I was driving in L.A. and it came on my radio, and I was like, "What is this song?" I had never heard it before. This was probably like two or three years ago. I just I love I've always loved Linda Ronstadt's voice, 
but I had never heard that song. And I just, I literally was driving and just kept rewinding it to hear it again because I, I just fell in love with it. And written I written by Michael Nesmith of the Monkees. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's fa- it's fantastic. <laughs> I mean, she the the arrangement, her voice. But I just, I wanted something weird. I mean, Annabelle's a weird girl. What I loved about Noelle is that she captured that weirdness really well. She just really, she's like a leading lady, but she has that strand of DNA that's a little off. And like, that's what I needed. And that's what I kind of like about the song. It's very unexpected. I can't imagine Fox would have ever let us use that song. And I had had other songs in the slot, but when I, I just, there was something about it you and I travel to the beat of a different drum. I just felt like that is absolutely correct right. for that moment. But yes, the song is a little bit more about the woman being uncapturable. I guess I like I like the putting the the gaze onto the man. Right. So I liked twisting it a little bit there. And then come and get your love. Yeah. What's the thought there? Um again like that he is this open loving lovely guy who has all of this love to give and it's in many ways Annabelle's fantasy that he would be like come and get your love but I think she doesn't know that about him so it was kind of like this cute little secret again like I I had asked my friends um, Brendan and Julie and Dave who I worked with on Grace and Frankie for song ideas because I was just like what would this song because they had they had read the pilot Brendan and Dave had had punched it up for me it was the first time I had had friends punch up a pilot but they did an amazing job. And um, so they pitched a ton of songs. And then somehow, I don't know, I, I found that one. And it just felt right. Because I like I like that it's a little off. There's something off about it. It has, I also, the thing I liked about it, and it even came across nicely in the reading, was the, the way that I th- the, the song gets thread through. So right. it's like you're hearing it in a montage, but then you're hearing it like, music version yeah you're hearing all these different versions of it I thought it was just a nice way to connect it all so that I I always feel like things need to flow and feel alive and lively and be like um, I saw this documentary once about about movie making and this film editor named Walter Murch was being interviewed and he talked about editing movies standing up because he likes to feel sprung (laughs) and I just that's how I like the pilots to feel that they really do feel like they're 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 sprung like they're they're they have life and bounce and and forward momentum and and I do think a lot of writers even writing single camera don't take advantage yeah. of those sort of filmic right. elements yeah. it's just sort of people talking right. in a room somewhere yeah. and not using oh you can use music and editing and all of right. these other tools yeah. because you basically are making it's a film. Like a multi-camera show where mm-hmm. you're not, right. you're doing a play. Yeah. You're, you know, uh, so it was another one of the things that when I read it, I like. I was like, okay, you, here's someone who's really taking advantage of all the tools yeah. that you can have. Sure. And not just setting scenes somewhere and having characters yeah, you bounce can, back you, and forth. In theory, banter. until you try to produce it, you can do it all. You right. can do it anywhere until the line producer's like, we can't do any of that. Right. We're shooting it on the back lot. And you're like, oh, God. Right. And the song costs $30,000. Yes, exactly. Or $100,000. Right. So do you want to talk about the, the pilot that you sold that, that sure. that's actually yeah. getting shot right yeah, now? Yeah, sure. I wish it were getting shot right now because that would mean it was cast. <laughs> well, and, it's in pre-production yeah. right now. Um, again, like it has, it's a whole new. For me, it's like, and I'm the last person who should ever use this uh, 
this comparison, but it's like getting to the level, a new level on a video game that you've been playing for years and years. And then finally you get through that door and you go to these all of these levels that you've never been on before with sort of the same things, but different. And that's what it's felt like for me. It's like a whole new set of terror because I just, you feel exposed in such a different way. Like people, you know, the agencies all get it and read it and and actors start reading it and directors and designers and all of these things. But um, it was, uh, the development of it was me sitting down last year with 20th, who I did Annabelle Phipps with, and they offered me a blind script. And I said yes, because I, I thought, okay, that's like a nice... So that, so that basically means for listeners who don't know, it's there's not a specific idea. They're just like, we want your next idea. We're buying it sort of sight unseen. Right. And then you have to come to... You have to come up with it. Yeah. And they have to like agree, it. agree to it. Yeah. So the first thing I pitched them, they did not like. And I did it with a friend. It was an idea that we had worked on once before with actually one of the executives at 20th, Cheryl Dolan's. And I had said to her when I signed the deal, I said, I'm going to try to figure this idea out again and and see what you think. And she she was open to it. And we worked on it and we pitched it and, and it just they just did not like it. They just didn't feel like the networks would want it. Whereas I thought I was reading the tea leaves of like, you know, Roseanne had just been on. I thought this was a little bit more like for middle America and, and dealing with some of those issues. And they were just like, no, they are saying they want not escapism, but they don't want to like live in that kind of red state, blue state conflict, all that stuff. So I said, so I said, you know what? You're paying me a lot of money. I will come up with something else. And I actually, that was probably on a Thursday, and I set a new pitch meeting for the following Tuesday because I was I I had only the kernel of this thing I sold called Richard Lovely, but I thought I I let me just force myself to do it, and I had had this idea about it was based on an experience I had of flying to Minneapolis to see a friend in the winter and the plane was empty and I was so happy having like two seats to myself and out of the blue a little kid sat down next to me and just buckled in and I immediately was like what if this plane crashes and we're the only two survivors and this is my kid and from that I came up with this idea of a show about a children's book author who hates children who um has suffers a bit of a public um, shaming. He just has a public, a, a big like publicity problem. And to solve that problem, he ends up fostering a kid, which is like his worst nightmare and doesn't want to do it. And in the process of going through all of this stuff, the main character of the books he's been writing for years, Mr. Mouse, comes to life and in animated form and basically tortures him too. So he has like a mother who's torturing him and uh, this character from his books and the little boy is... Um, not exactly what is going to be the easiest kid in the world to sort of be a foster parent to. And he has to sort of go to the mom next door and her kids who he kind of has never liked and ask them for help. So it's about this character sort of stepping outside of his, his not even comfort zone, his like shell of a world he's built around himself and seeing that, you know, not that it takes a village to raise a kid, but that he's going to have to sort of let these people into his, life if he's going to get through this at all so um again it was it was uh unlike annabelle phipps which i pitched it was 20th for fox we pitched it to fox they took it off the table 
this was 20th for Fox, but in this new relationship, we pitched it to all four broadcast networks. Fox and NBC bought it, but Fox really wanted it. For them, it was a family comedy with a new kind of family with an animated character, which is a, a hybrid form that they've really wanted to crack. You know, they did Son of Zorn a few years ago, which which didn't work out for them, but they they feel like there's something there. So again, like I kind of lucked into it a little bit because this I didn't make this pitch because I thought I'm checking all these boxes for what Fox wants. I just organically was like, well, okay, he's an author. What kind of author should he be? Well, it would be funny if he's a children's book author because he's going to end up with this kid. And then it was sort of, I remember the moment when I was like, oh, maybe the main character should like come to life. Like I just threw it into the pitch, just trying to like find jokes for the pitch. Wow. So, and then that was really literally the thing when I pitched it to Susanna, I finished pitching and she was just like, so it's a, it's a family comedy with, a, with an animated character. I was like, yeah, she's like sold. And I was like, great, all right. And um, so again, like the development process, uh, I was, and my pitch was, uh, a version of was really the pilot story once again with a sort of the last page page and a half was me talking about the series and these characters and but so I was sent right to sort of a story document outline hybrid and I think they had a big note the the network had a big note I think they wanted a different version of Mr. Mouse so I sort of originally he was sort of a stuffy kind of Englishman and he became a little bit more of like Kevin Klein in Soap Dish, where it's like a nervous actor who's afraid he's gonna like lose his job and have to audition again if if his if Richard Lovely doesn't get his job back and be able to write the books again. And then there were a couple of other they asked, I think when we got to script, they wanted more of they didn't feel like Richard's fame was coming through because the idea was that he was this super successful um children's book author they just felt like that wasn't coming across so I came up with a whole new opening that sort of sold that I think really well and then they wanted me to sort of go back to the little boy character Georgie and just find a more they didn't say they were like it could be that he's Dennis the Menace it could be that he's you know just like Richard it could be that he's this they, they gave me a list of things and I just kept the studio sort of kept sending me back for you know to back to the script to, to try again and I finally just I mean I think I basically just rewrote every scene I could get my hands on but in doing that came up with a sweet idea where Georgie like Richard's mother says to him like he's just he might be driving you crazy but he's just like you which was always kind of my original idea and I sort of circled back around to it um, and so by the, by the time I figured that out I think I did a, a call with Michael Thorne and Susanna and Samata at Fox and you know they had final few notes and I did those and then everybody was feeling good and super <laughs> excited I was feeling good to everybody and I just was like okay and literally they would call me with like quote unquote good news like well we got this piece of news which feels like it might be good for pickup and I would always just be like okay and they'd be like I sense from your voice that you're not as excited as we are and I was like I'm not like and it's not that I'm I'm up. I'm not upset. I'm but just. You've got six dead pilots. I got six row. dead pilots, and I just thought, sure. I did all. I did all the things they asked me to do. I started talking about directors. I I started doing everything, but I just thought, until I get the call, I, it's You're, not alive. Yeah. So I'm not gonna plan for it. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's probably the smart company. Yeah. I don't know how else to be. Action. Yeah. Um, well, that's so great. I'm very happy for you. Thank you. Um, I loved uh, this pilot. Thank, Thank you, you for, for doing letting it. Us yeah, it. it was so great to hear it. It really was. And I, I just have to say the cast, all of the actors you had were amazing. But in mine in particular, I mean, Ethan Peck, I thought was just like yeah. everything I dreamed of for that. Yeah. That character. Perfect. He and Noel just. Yeah. Um, so great. funny together. But yeah, across the board. I mean, even some of the small Mo Collins. Yeah. Oh, my God. Andy when she Ryan's came. Andy, and they, when, just, when, when Mo Collins came out and started doing those leg movements. I, I just know. Was the like, podcast I... audience. Sorry. You, you, you missed some amazing <laughs> physicality. Yes. Um, but yeah, Tia. Everybody. As, as Lauren, I mean, it was really. And of course, I'm forgetting someone, but I'll have talked about it in the opening. Yeah. Um, no, it was great. And uh, yeah. Congrats on this one. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. And that's it for our show this month. Next month's going to be special. Uh, You're going to hear a script of mine. Uh, It's the pilot that I am most proud of. It's called Pearl. And it's also Max Fun Drive. So you get me and my co-host, Ben Blacker, gently, gently begging you for money. Uh, Thank you to our associate producer, Noah Findling. Thanks to everyone at Dynasty Typewriter. Please subscribe to this podcast. We really don't want you to miss an episode. Uh, And while you're there, leave us a rating. Uh, So many of you have. Uh, This is definitely the best reviewed thing I've ever worked on. Uh, But keep it up. Leave us a rating. And you should really follow us on the evil social media outlets, Twitter at Dead Pilots Pod, Instagram and Facebook at Dead Pilots Society. You'll find out about our live shows. I don't even know when our next live show is, but if you follow us, you will find out. Until next month, I'm Andrew Reich. Thank you for listening.